On a chilly spring morning, Dr. Nir Uriel rose before the sun came up. He put on his workout clothes, threw his cycling shoes in a bag, and headed out the door. But he wasn't going to just any morning workout class. He was about to lead a room full of cardiologists and heart surgeons in a cycling workout that he himself had designed to mimic what it feels like to experience heart failure. The class was a combo of intervals and hills, where the incline increased every minute. So participants had to go fast with what felt like lead in their legs, making their hearts work harder and harder. The workout was grueling, but the physicians got through it. And they came away with a newfound appreciation for what it feels like to be in the shoes of a patient with advanced heart failure. Dr. Uriel is not actually a cycling instructor. He's the Director of Advanced Heart Failure and Cardiac Transplantation at New York Presbyterian, Columbia, and Weill Cornell Medicine. This class was just his own out-of-the-box way of delivering a keynote lecture about advanced heart failure treatments. And yes, he literally gave the lecture while leading the spin class. For anybody who knows Dr. Uriel, this anecdote isn't surprising, because he's a physician who knows that the best way to treat his patients is with humility and empathy. I'm Katherine Price, and this is Advances in Care. On today's episode, more about Dr. Uriel's empathetic, team-centered approach to treating his patients, and how he's embracing technologies like AI and machine learning to push forward advances that are allowing patients to live long, full lives despite their diagnoses. So Dr. Uriel, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I am really excited to get to talk to you today. Catherine, thank you for having me. I'm actually excited to have this conversation and to brainstorm together a little bit about heart transplant, heart failure. I don't know how much I will be able to add to this, this uh, conversation. You will be surprised that uh, actually what drives in a lot of science is actually ideas that come from whoever you meet in the street. So sometimes uh, great ideas starting by watching something that is completely not related and trying to take it into your direction. So I'm actually, I'm sure that I will get a lot from you, Catherine. I'm trusting you. All right. So, well, let's kick this off. So can you tell me a bit more about what you do and what your specialty is? I'm specialized in a disease that uh, is a tough disease to handle, heart failure. Heart failure is um, one of the most common diseases in the United States with more than 8 million people living with heart failure here in the United States, more than 24 million people worldwide with heart failure. Unfortunately, it's also the disease that is the most common disease on a death certificate in the United States. Hmm. Let me give you some grim statistics a little bit about what's really going on in the United States. Only the minority of heart failure patients in the United States, probably around 8%, have been treated by heart failure specialists. And only something like 20% of the heart failure patients have been treated by cardiology in general. Wow. So the majority of the patient doesn't get to the right people to treat them. What's so amazing with this disease is that if you treat it right, you actually change all the course of this disease. If you don't treat it, it's devastating. But if you get involved, it will always be there, but they can live with it. A normal life and a long life with being with their family, friend, and do whatever they want to do. I mean, that's amazing. But can you give me a sense of what the advances have been in the past decade or so with mechanical devices like ventricular assist devices that have allowed you to get to this point? 
So let me take you a little bit back in time. We develop a continuous flow LVAD, left ventricular assist device. And uh, those LVADs actually have a continuous flow. Our blood in our body is pump. And the pump is, we have heart rate and it's going up and down, up and down. A continuous flow that instead of having a heart rate of 80 beats per minute, we have a pump that is rotating in speed, something like 9,000, 10,000 revolution per minute. So of course you cannot feel the pulse. What you're going to have is a continuous flow because it's so fast. Hmm. As a result of it, Part of the problem with those pumps is they could have developed actually a clot inside of those pumps. Gotcha. So you were concerned about clots actually in the devices. Yes. The problem was how to diagnose those clots because those pumps make from metals. So, of course, no x-ray or nothing can go inside and see what's going on in the pump. And I remember I was driving my car and I started going uphill. And I had to push more on the gas in order to maintain the same speed. So actually I thought to myself, what is this is what we need to do with the LVAD in order to learn if there is a block inside of it. Hmm. Because if there is a thrombus inside of it, in order that the pump will maintain the same flow capability, I will need to increase the speed much more in order to overcome this flow. So actually we developed the ramp test, meaning ramp up the speed of the pump and see how it change the flow. If you, if despite increasing the speed, you have the same flow, it's meaning that the pump is obstructed. Huh. And actually we develop this and we create a mathematical equation. And if it's a normal pump that doesn't have any obstructed, you increase the speed, you get more flow, increase more and more flow, more flow. And we saw that it's behaving right now. And then we can create a slope, huh. but it all starts by driving a car <laughs> and trying to go <laughs> uphill. I love the idea that your brain in some way made the connection between your foot on the gas and what might be happening in someone's heart and how to figure out if there might actually be some kind of blockage. That's really interesting. It became one of the key studies that teach us how to detect device thrombosis. It was used all over the world, not only all over the country, to detection of device thrombosis. People start doing ramp tests. I remember the first time after I published a paper, I got a phone call from Norway uh-huh. and uh, they said, oh, we want to talk to you. We did this ramp test, but we don't know how to read it. They sent me the ramp test and said, oh, it seems to be that there is a pump thrombosis. They took the patient to the operating room and there was a pump thrombosis. They fixed it and they called me after and I said, wow, this is actually can touch patient without touching the patient. It's not your patient that you're taking care. It's patient that you take care in so many different places because of methods and technique that you can develop. Wow. So that's what is how it originally was born, but it's actually take his own way. The ramp test itself is something that we, the first paper was published in 2012, so more than 10 years ago, and it was to detect pump thrombosis. But from there, we understand something much more important than detective device thrombosis. Uh, the current situation is that what the ramp test allow you is to set the right speed. Okay, so the ramp test doesn't just detect clots, but you actually use it now to set the speed for the pump. So why is that so important? Think about yourself. You're now sitting in the studio and you're talking to me, you're very relaxed. You have a cardiac output of five liter. But then you're going to go to a little jog and you need a cardiac output to 10, 12 liter. And then you're going to sleep and you need only three liter. Our pump runs the same speed all the time. So how can we find a speed that will give you enough comfortable to be at rest, to be at exercise? 
And what is the right speed that will be associated with the reduce of those adverse events that I start talking about? So the RAMP test that was born originally to detect device thrombosis, turn shape, and now is a test that we set the speed up. We identified what is the right speed for the patient because we learn how the heart is behaving each one of the speed. We look at the heart from an echocardiographic perspective. What happened to the size of the heart? What happened to the function of the valve during this change? Parallel to that, we have a catheter inside of the heart now that will measure the pressure and we learn where is the optimal pressure setting for this specific patient. We can significantly reduce the rate of adverse event and heart failure relation admission. Wow. And I understand since you started your research, you've refined how the pumps are actually constructed so that bleeding and clotting are not as much of a problem as they used to be. So your patients are actually living a lot longer with their devices. So can you tell me about those advancements? Yes, we developed this pump that's called HeartMate 3. The HeartMate 3, okay. It's a completely magnetic levitated pump. What does it mean? It means that there is a cage and there is a motor inside the cage. The motor that rotates in a speed between 4,000 to 6,000 or 7,000 revolutions per minute doesn't touch anything. Oh, It rotates inside of a magnetic field. So if I wanted to think about it as something similar to that, think about the bullet train that exists in Asia and in Europe. The bullet train can ride so fast, 280 miles per hour, not like the, the Amtrak train that we have here, <laughs> is because those bullet train actually doesn't touch the, the rails. There is a magnetic field that create and they go with this magnetic field. Because of it, there is less friction. Friction is a source of heat generation. Protein can denaturate in heat. Oh. A lot of things can happen to the blood in heat. So the HeartMed 3 is a completely magnetic levitated pump that have a motor rotated inside of a cage, doesn't touch anything. And because of it, there is no heat. Huh. There is nothing that happened inside of it that can uh, destroy those blood products. Wow. Okay. So, so what effects has using that pump had on your heart failure patients? So we just published in the JAMA paper, the five-year survival of the HeartMed 3. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit, it started to be mirroring what we can see in heart transplantation. We need to remember that those patients are much sicker than the transplant patient. A lot of them were declined transplantation because they're too sick or because they're too old. Oh, really? But despite that, the survival was amazing and uh, outstanding. I mean, that's just all amazing. Just watching you talk about this, you're glowing as you're describing (laughs) how you feel about these advancements. And it's just, I'm getting very excited about heart failure treatment. (laughs) (laughs) I have to say, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting to know that when you come, you know what? I'm always afraid. Someone will come to my office and I will say to him, you have this disease and I don't know what I can offer you. And I don't have anything to offer you. Yes, I will escort them and I will walk with them through the journey of their disease and making sure that they have someone next to them that can give them the information they need and the emotional and social support together with their families. But I want to be the one not only doing that. I want to be the one that helps them have a long life, helps Mm -hmm. them enjoy their life. Those technology enhancements, change the way we're able to treat our patient. So tell me more about, you know, how things are changing in transplantation in particular when it comes to those technological enhancements. 
I mean, especially in regards to how you can tell when things are going wrong. Yeah. Transplant is a magic. It's something very magical. You know, you take the most devastating thing that can happen to a person, his life, his death, and you take something from him and you actually save someone else and give another family an opportunity to be with a member. And the challenge is that the body always wants to reject whatever is not on. We love only ourselves. We don't love anyone else inside ourselves. So we want to reject. So immunosuppression is the key element that changed transplantation. It all changed in the 80s when eventually a medication called cyclosporin was developed that actually really help us control the immune system in a way that we still function enough to fight infection, malignancy, but prevent the rejection of it. Mm. The challenge that we still rejection can happen and because of it, patients need to be monitored very closely. So the ways of being monitored is actually receiving um, biopsies. When I was trained, we did 17 biopsy routine in the first year of every patient. Wow, 17 times they had to come in? They had to come in the first months every week to the cath lab. We have to go to catheterization into their heart, take it four pieces of their heart and send it to pathology. Wow. Think about the stress those patients have to go through. Despite we think that we are the most gentle, and I think that whenever I'm in the cath lab and I'm doing this procedure, I'm, I'm sure that I'm the gentle guy in the world, but I'm sure nobody wants to lie down over there on the table and get this vibe. No, no, I think no matter how gentle you are, if you're taking a piece of someone's heart out, it's got to... <laughs> It's got to be traumatic exactly. on a lot of different levels. And it can have also complication this procedure. Mm-hmm. But in the last few years, there was a significant transformation by us being able to test the blood and see what we call cell-free DNA. Oh, okay. Right. I remember hearing that being able to test patients using cell-free DNA was a really big breakthrough for you. So can you tell me more about how that actually works? The DNA is sitting inside the cell. So when it's outside the cell, it means this cell dies. All of us have cells that die every day. That's part of nature of life. Mm-hmm. But suddenly, if there is an area that will die more, there will be more of it. We have a DNA. The donor have a different DNA. So if we can identify how much of the DNA that we found in the blood is not a DNA that belongs to us, it means that it has to come from the donor. So if huh. this level is elevated, it means that the donor going through a process that the cells of their die and that huh. process most of the time will be a rejection. I see. Okay, so you're saying you test to see if there's more dead cells than normal. And if those dead cells are the donor's DNA, then it means a rejection is probably taking place. Yes, it's completely transformed the way that we do our transplant today. At New York Presbyterian, if you get a heart transplant, you get only four biopsies. Wow. And all the rest will be only cell-free DNA. And if necessary, we'll do that. We sometimes do even less than four biopsies. Wow. And I mean, I understand that you've adapted post-transplant medication too. So can you tell me about that? The main problem of heart transplant is what we're doing after. We are so afraid of rejection to give a lot of immunosuppression. And it's true because we don't want rejection. Right. But but there is going to be a lot of people that are not going to reject so fast. They don't need so much immunosuppression. And immunosuppression have a big price. Huh. Malignancies and infection. And I said, maybe this test can guide us how much immunosuppression 
we should give to the patient. And maybe we can identify the patient that are low risk, give them less immunosuppression. I mean, that's that's amazing. It's like what I'm hearing you say is that you're not just currently able to get a sense non-invasively of whether the body's rejecting the heart, but you're saying you're now working to personalize immunosuppressive therapies for transplant patients so that you're you're not just like blasting them, you're actually titrating the medicine. You, you just use the right words, personalize. Mm-hmm. We need to stop treating everybody as the same. We have to do precision medicine, personalized medicine. That's what we have to do. Huh. I mean, that's just mind-blowing to think about the implications of that just across all fields. Oh, it's exciting. It's exciting. And that's the reason I'm saying that it's exciting. And that's the reason we need more new people that think different. We need people that actually willing to challenge the paradigm. Yeah. And you're also using technology to challenge the paradigm of how patients receive care too, right? I mean, like with your remote patient monitoring program, can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, you're right. Uh, Nobody wants to sit in an office of a doctor for two hours waiting for his appointment to happen. So we established a remote monitoring program, a way to handle the heart failure patient remotely. I'm not going to be able to see you and physically examine you, But it doesn't mean that I cannot have a lot of information about what's going on with you. Mm -hmm. So today we're very fortunate. There is a lot of technology that we can put in the patient or in the hand of the patient. So let me give you an example. It can be as simple as a scale and a blood pressure cuff and a video chat as we are doing now, or as sophisticated as was something that I like to do a lot. I can put a tiny, tiny chip in a size that is less than a dime. And I can put it into the pulmonary artery of the patient in a procedure that takes 45 minutes and very simple. And when the patient go home, every morning when he wake up, he lie on a special pillow that I give him. And this tiny chip that I put serves as an antenna, measure the pressure in the pulmonary artery, send it to the pillow, pillow send it to the cloud. And I have my team of looking at those numbers and I said if the numbers are in this range wonderful if it's too high change the medication if it's too low change medication if it's completely out of range call me and let me know we call this cardio mem cardio mem yes and this is something that we do a lot in real presbyterian just to give you an example, we just uh, analyzed our data a couple of months ago and we were blown away in our cardiomem program. We reduced the rate of heart failure admission by 64%. And we said, wow, this is really changing patient life. They don't need to be admitted. They can be managed. They feel better and they are doing much better. That is really amazing that you could actually monitor heart failure patients from home. But it also makes me think, so those people obviously know they have heart failure, but I was reading something about how you're doing work using artificial intelligence to somehow identify patients who have heart failure who don't even know it yet. Can you tell me more about that? So everybody have the same electronic medical record. It's called EPIC. EPIC have so much in it that we don't see, that we can't see because, as I said, there is so much information. So what we decide of doing, we create an analytical program based on analysis, on things that we know that actually 
tell you that you have heart failure before something happens. If the patient has a low ejection fraction, if the patient has a blood test called BNP that is elevated, if someone is using high dose of IV diuretics. Mm. So we create a mathematical algorithm that can identify the patient. Okay, you mean like it identifies patients with these warning signs for heart failure? Yes, and uh, when we launch it, we launch it in Brooklyn Methodist. It was the first hospital. And in the first day we did it, we identified double the amount of patients that we thought were in the hospital with heart failure. Oh, wow. So, so what we said is that our heart failure specialist in Brooklyn Methodist will go to those patients and see them at least one to see if the computer is right, computer is wrong. The computer was right in 73% of the cases. So actually pretty good. Wow. So what do you think going forward this might be able to help you do? Is it not just about predicting, but would this actually affect the way you treat patients? It's going to take us to a new direction that is a little bit imaginary. So to use this artificial intelligence and to help us after we identify the patient, see if together with the computer, of course, with our input, we can identify the right route for this patient, the right management track that we want this patient on. I mean, that's just really interesting to think about because, you know, there's so much discussion about AI right now. And on the one hand, that sounds absolutely amazing, but I would imagine that you probably have peers and patients who are resistant. So what's your take on that? How should we be thinking about this? This is the revolution that we are at right now. And in medicine, you have sometimes two choices. You can stand still and say, this is the way we work and this is how we are. Or we need to accept the changes that happen in life. I mean, that sounds like that is foundational to your philosophy of how you think medicine should be practiced. You know, being open to change, being humble about how you're practicing medicine. And I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about your philosophy towards treatment. Yes, you're right. This is go to my philosophy about medical care. Medicine historically was based as a one-on-one profession. It's like a combat fight, (laughs) one-on-one, you with your patient and you alone. However, then it's only your skills and yes, they're good and you're very talented, but you're limited. In a world that has so much information and knowledge exists around you, uh, it's almost impossible to cover all bases. And uh, so my belief in medicine is general, that is it's a team approach. Gotcha. So what does that team approach actually look like in practice? What's unique in New York Presbyterian that it's not only one center. Uh, here at New York Presbyterian, we build a mega center for heart failure. Mm-hmm. We have eight adult hospitals that are part of it. We are the biggest heart failure uh, team in the country with more than 32 board certified heart failure attending. There is a lot of depth into this and experience in any field of heart failure, from heart failure with reduced ejection fraction to preserved ejection fraction, from heart transplantation, mechanical circulatory support, cardiac amyloid, pulmonary hypertension. We have experts in each one of those that actually devoted their life. So when you combine all of this together, in almost every piece of information, you will have someone that will have what to contribute. You create teams. These teams have the ability to tackle much more in much more challenging situation and actually to bring more uh, tools that will be able to resolve those situations. And if you work in a team and you don't work as an individual, then you actually can make a big difference. 
I think that if you take your ego aside in medicine in general, you can provide a little bit better care to your patient. I think the main element in medicine have to be that it's about the patient. This is not about you in any way, shape or form. Hmm. So by doing it as a team, you may be able to provide a better care to the patient. I love that on so many levels. It's just so refreshing and wonderful to hear your perspective with this deep humility uh, in terms of your role in this, coupled obviously with deep skill and competence. Think about it. The most important thing that we have in our life is our body. So when someone came to me and sit in front of me and he shared with me the problem that he have now, and I understand this problem is not... A small problem. This is a life-threatening problem. And he trusts me with that. I need to do everything that's right by him or her. So there was a record that came to my uh, office of a patient that wanted like a third opinion that he needs transplantation. I look at the record and I say, wow, this is a young man, very young man. I think during that time he was in the 28 or something like that. Oh, wow. And yeah, he had a congenital heart disease with multiple surgery already in him. He also had a type 1 diabetes. Oh. He was already blind. He born blind. And uh, he was rejected from all uh, two other centers for transplantation. And they live very, very far away. And I didn't feel it's fair for the family to come so far that they hear another rejection. So I remember the first day that they stepped into my office with um, a cane, you know, because he was blind, with his mother and stepfather. And um, we start talking and I just fell in love with him and the family and the situation. So in order to overcome all those surgery that he had to do as a baby, and you know, baby wanted to everything so he had to be tied as a baby so the way that his family you mean like tied down so he wouldn't actually disturb his own sutures yeah. and his so the wow. family uh-huh. the family what they did they play music to him so he will calm down so they play country music <laughs> and he became a country musician oh wow and he opened he opened to kenny rogers and loretta lane and he really <laughs> became a musician despite being blind type 1 diabetes heart failure and all of this. And I said, I don't give a damn. We're going to transplant this guy. I brought him to the committee something like seven times. And every time everybody said, Nir is crazy, he's young. And he's not knowing what he's doing. And, and every time I failed to convince the committee, but they decide that I'm going to do like one by one, I will go to each one of the committee member and I will rally them to be on Are ice. You, oh, you had a whole campaign. Uh, I, oh, that's funny. I did it. And we transplanted him. Wow. He waited in the hospital almost a year for transplant because he had so many antibodies. And I still see him. <laughs> we are more than 10 years after. He's amazing. He's inspiring. The family is inspiring. And you learn never to turn down a case because of how the record and always to meet the patient. And since then, I never, I always, if someone wants to see you, I will always see someone because to see how as it looks. So yeah. I just, I just had to do a little, <laughs> a little eye wipe after that one. So yes. And uh, <laughs> I, I have a very bad habit that uh, a lot of my patients have my cell phone, but uh, they know <laughs> what to send and they just make me smile. Sometimes when you have a tough day, you look at this and said it was worth it. But this is what 
you know, advanced outfare is all about because it's life and death in those relationship. When the patient is coming to my clinic or I'm doing a video call with him, actually we open our life to each other. And uh, of course the patient much more, you build on it. It's not a one visit, it's not two. Mm. If you do it right, as I said, those patients can live a very long life and uh, there is nothing more rewarding than to see them achieve their own dreams and what they want to, to do. That's amazing. I, I, it's just amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me into your life for this conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I know I, I had a good time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Dr. Nir Uriel for speaking with us today. His empathetic approach and personal commitment to his patients really inspired me, and I can't wait to see where he takes his research next. I'm Katherine Price. Advances in Care is a production of New York Presbyterian Hospital. As a reminder, the views shared on this podcast solely reflect the expertise and experience of our guests. To find more amazing stories about the pioneering physicians at New York Presbyterian, go to nyp.org slash advances.